encourage you to turn in it to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Our passage is going to be verses 19 to 29. And we are continuing on the topic of God's choice or His election of some people to forgiveness of sin and eternal life while leaving others to receive the just penalty for their sin. Now, before we get to the text, I should say, in light of the coronavirus outbreak, I pondered yesterday whether or not to switch to a different passage and preach a message maybe from Psalm 46 or Psalm 91 on trusting God when the earth shakes and so forth. Um, I was quite taken aback, I guess, when I went to uh, King Supers and, uh, and some other stores on Thursday. We were trying to find some basic household items, and I did not realize that all this panic buying was going on. Um, nothing that we needed was there. <laughs> the shelves were completely wiped out. I, I wasn't aware of the panic uh, in real life. It was like Black Friday. Um, at the stores. So I was thinking maybe we need a message on trusting God, but then I thought about this passage that we were already going to preach, and I thought, you know what, this actually is a message about trusting God because it focuses on ultimate realities. It gets our mind off of the immediate thing, whatever is the latest um, issue that's got our attention, and and it forces us to look beyond that to bigger realities, things that are of much greater importance. Um, there's, such, there's something that's a lot more serious than coronavirus that we have to deal with, which is sin and the penalty that it deserves. Um, to quote Romans 2.8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's a much more significant eternal reality that we have to deal with. But also the other reality, which is that Jesus Christ saves us from it. The ultimate safety, the ultimate refuge is Him. So we are reminded of those things as we walk through Romans 9. Our passage is about an explanation of why it is right for God to find fault with us. Why His wrath is justified. And the reason it speaks about this is not to leave us in fear of wrath, but to move us again, or for the first time, to trust in the grace of God which saves us from it. So, with that, let's read Romans 9, 19 to 29, then I'll pray. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
and in the very place where it was said to them, they are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, you know this is one of those passages that isn't everybody's favorite. It's difficult. It sounds a little intimidating, actually. But you are good. You are just. You are a savior. And you are merciful. So even though we will have to think about wrath this morning, we'll have to think about some hard things, we, we ask that your mercy would shine even the brighter as a result of it, which I know is your purpose for this passage. Help us again to rejoice in Jesus Christ and to feel the peace that comes from knowing him. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the passage begins with a question that Paul goes on to answer. And the question is, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? So we need a little background to put that question in context. What is he talking about? Chapter 9 starts with Paul's great concern for his fellow Jews, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Israelites, because most of them did not believe the gospel. When he preached it and other people preached it, they didn't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They didn't believe he died for their sins. And so he is overwhelmed with sorrow over that because to reject Christ is a serious thing. There will be God's wrath and fury as a just punishment for those whose sins aren't forgiven. So he's bothered, he's grieved over that, but he can sleep at night. Because he knows something. He knows that ultimately, whether one believes or disbelieves in Jesus is not because God's word has failed. It's because God in his sovereign purposes never intended to save all of Israel as an ethnic group or to save everyone on planet Earth, for that matter. He always intended to elect or choose to save some but not all to give some a saving faith that leads to salvation and not to give that saving faith to others who will continue on their road of unbelief and therefore to condemnation. This decision of God is summarized in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The elect receive mercy and thus a softening of their hearts to God. And the non-elect, sometimes called the reprobate, are actually hardened against God. And Paul gives an example in Pharaoh, who resisted God after all the plagues kept coming and coming and coming. He wouldn't let Israel go from slavery, ultimately to his own ruin. The fact that God actually does harden people against himself is even strengthened by verses like John 12:40 where John quotes Isaiah as saying the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So that's the background behind this question in verse 19. If God doesn't grant people saving faith but actually hardens them in unbelief against him, then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if God hardens people like Pharaoh so they won't listen to him, then how can they be held accountable for that? How can God condemn and carry out wrath on people for doing what he willed for them to do? That sounds unjust. And that's the question that Paul's going to answer. He's going to explain that it is totally just for God to find fault with us and to carry out punishment on those whom he hardens, even as he extends mercy to others. So let's just see what his defense is. And let's give this our closest attention because this is a, this is a display of God's glory in some areas that maybe we don't hear very often. We like to think of God as love, and he is that. But there's also a side of God that is a justice side. And without that, we can't really appreciate the fact that God is love. So we need to see God's character come forth in all of this. So let's see what Paul's defense is to the question. It actually starts out really unexpectedly, at least I think so. Uh, Actually very blunt. His first argument is basically this. What is unjust is to charge God with wrong. What's unjust is to charge God with wrong. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? (laughs) Who are you, O man? Who do you think you are asking a question like that? Watch how you talk to God. (laughs) That might seem like a cold or even a harsh way to address a, a legitimate question. I mean, don't you think? That's not exactly a feel-good kind of an answer. (laughs) Who are you to answer back to God? We might have expected him to say something more like this. Yes, I can see how you might have trouble with God hardening people. I can see how this makes God look bad, like he's keeping people down, like he's keeping them from the salvation that they want and that they need. So let me reword this so it doesn't sound like that. No, none of that. He just says, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Now, why does he start there? Well, it's because the question is really an accusation against the character of God. If God hardens whomever he wills, then I don't think that sounds right. That sounds unjust. That sounds unfair. I don't want a God like that. I won't respect a God like that. I refuse to accept that. The question Paul is responding to isn't rooted in a humble lack of understanding, like Mary saying to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's rooted in prideful unbelief, like Zechariah who said, how will I know this? In other words, prove it to me because I don't believe that. We can have that kind of an attitude towards God, can't we? When he doesn't do something that we want, When he allows us to suffer, when there's a delay in seeing his promises fulfilled, 
or when his word says something that we find hard to believe, we can answer back to God. And we can say, I'm not going to accept that. I won't follow a God who doesn't do what I think is right. You haven't healed my affliction. You haven't given me a good job. I thought my life was going to be better if I followed you, but it's not. We can charge God with wrong. It's that attitude that Paul's addressing. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It puts us in a place, in our place. You're just man. You're not God. (laughs) As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts from Isaiah 55. Or like what the Lord said to Job when he questioned God, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? (laughs) You forget your place. You forget who you're dealing with here. This is the creator God you're questioning, really whom you are accusing of being unjust. So who are you, O man, to do that? Well, that kind of answer rubs us the wrong way, I think. Because we naturally feel we have a right to know and a right to judge God's actions. That if the biblical picture doesn't suit us, we will find ourselves another God more to our liking. One who has mercy on whomever he wills and who wills to be merciful to everyone. A God who doesn't judge, who doesn't condemn anyone to hell. A God who does not harden people. But that isn't the God who exists. Now, Paul will answer the question. He will show us why God is not unjust in hardening whomever he wills. But his first response is to remind us that it is never okay to charge God with wrong. That charge is what's unjust. God's word says his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32, 4. It tells us his will is good and acceptable and perfect from Romans 12, 2. Questions that are humble are invited. <laughs> Questions that are accusations are unacceptable. Who are you, O man, to put God on trial? Because surely the God who sent his Son To die on the cross for our sins can be trusted to be good even when we don't understand his ways. He has demonstrated to us he can be trusted. We have to become comfortable with mystery. We have to trust God that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there is an explanation There is a justification for why God isn't unjust in finding fault with those whom he hardens. And there are two main arguments that Paul puts forward. So let's look at those. Here's the first one. It's that God has a right not to save everyone. He has that right not to save everyone. This comes from the Potter illustration in verses 20 and 21. It says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So the obvious answer to the question is yes. 
the potter has the right to make whatever he wants to out of a lump of clay. The clay is just raw material. It's not more suitable to be made into one thing than into another. The potter can mold it according to his purposes, whether that's for an honorable use, like a beautiful vase, or whether it's for a dishonorable use, like a trash can. The potter can do with clay what he wants. He has that right. Paul uses that illustration to say that's the right God has with people. God is the potter. We are the clay. Paul will go on in the next verses to talk about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Vessels for dishonorable use and for honorable use. And God is the potter who makes these vessels. Vessels of mercy like Moses who led the people out of Egypt. Vessels of wrath like Pharaoh who was hardened and received judgment. God makes them both. And he has the right to mold either one in any way he chooses. Now why is this okay? It's because the raw material that God starts with is human beings who are like clay, not gold. You see, gold is a substance that always gets made into something for honorable use. You don't make garbage cans out of gold. You make jewelry because we recognize gold as having this inherent quality that lends itself to that. But humans are like clay. Clay is suitable for dishonorable use, like a garbage can or an ashtray. And we are like clay because our inherent sinfulness makes us not like gold. The raw material God has to work with is sinners, who according to Romans are without excuse for rejecting God, who don't seek after God, who have sinned and fall short of His glory, who are in bondage to sin and are enemies of God. That's the raw material. So if God hardens a person for dishonorable use, it doesn't mean he makes a good person bad. It means he makes bad people or or allows bad people to get worse. Like the loaf of bread left out on the counter, unwrapped, it gets hard when left to itself. And so do we. God's hardening is only his giving us over to the rejection of God that is already in our hearts. So he has the right, if he chooses, to let us continue down that path and receive judgment. It's what our sins deserve. It's justice, not injustice. We talked about that at length last week. The really surprising thing is that God the potter makes anyone into a vessel for honorable use. That he decides to grant repentance and saving faith. That he decides to dwell within us by his Holy Spirit and conform us to the image of Christ, the perfect one. That's the beautiful vase. That God would do that for anybody. That he would change us internally. That he would make us love people, love God, be vessels for honor, useful to the master, like he told Timothy. That's the amazing thing. That's what's unexpected. But he does that because he is merciful. To be saved is to realize with wonder 
I'm being made into a beautiful vase, <laughs> into the image of Christ, but I deserve the trash can kind of life. I deserve the dishonorable use. But God is merciful, has been merciful to me. We don't have the right to decide what we'll be made into because we forfeited our rights for honorable use when we sinned against God. If a person's hardened and not saved, we can't say to God, why have you made me like this? Because it's what we chose for ourselves and go in our own way. So God is not to be charged with wrong for having mercy on some and hardening others. As we summarized it last week, some receive mercy, others receive justice, no one receives injustice. Now before we leave this point, we can say more to answer the question. If we could, answer, if we could ask the question humbly, <laughs> if we could say, why does God still find fault <laughs> with those who cannot resist his will? Still puzzling over that. There's more to the answer. Because you see, we learn from earlier places like verses 11 to 13 that God chose whom he would save before we were born. Before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had done anything good or bad, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob is going to receive the blessings, not Esau. God already said that's what's going to happen before they're even born. This was God's purpose of election, Paul says. So what a lot of people wrestle with on this topic of election is the realization that if God chose a person before they were born, that they would be vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, then did they ever really have any say in the matter? Why does God still find fault with people who apparently never had a choice to do anything but sin? It's a question about how divine sovereignty and human responsibility can coexist. It's often assumed that the only way God can hold a person accountable for their sin is if they have ultimate autonomy over themselves. That they have what is called free will to act or to do as they please apart from God. Well, the Bible definitely teaches that people are morally accountable for their sin that God has good reason to find fault. But it also teaches that people do not have complete autonomy over their lives to do whatever they want. No one can resist his will. That is true. And God still finds fault. That is also true because we are accountable. The Bible teaches both. No one can do anything outside of God's sovereign plans, whether you're Moses or Pharaoh, whether you're Paul or his unbelieving kinsman, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And we are still to blame for our sins, though we cannot resist the will of the potter, who either forms us into the image of Christ or hardens us in our rejection. So how can both of those things be true? These are deep waters to navigate. <laughs> And we don't have all the answers we want on this. There is mystery that will not be completely removed. But let me take you to just one passage that shows why God can still find fault even though we cannot resist his will. 
It's the example of Judas, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane so that he would end up being crucified. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, from Matthew 26, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now listen to this next sentence carefully. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, Jesus clearly says, One of you will betray me. And he means Judas. And I know that, not just because I know the future and I know what Judas is like, but because the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. That's why I know that. It's because it is written. It will come to pass. God has decreed it. Being betrayed so that I can be arrested and crucified is part of God's plan. It will happen. It must happen. The betrayer is not free to do anything different. And yet, the betrayer is totally accountable for betraying me. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. What, did, what Judas did was ordained to happen, but he was also doing what he freely chose, what was consistent with his evil heart. We know that Judas was a thief who used to help himself to what was put into the money bag. John twelve six. We know he was a lover of money who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. From Matthew 26, we know that when the apostles chose another apostle to replace Judas, it was to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They laid the blame on Judas, who turned aside from his apostleship to go to where he wanted to go. So here's what we know. Judas was totally accountable for his sinful actions. It's what he really wanted to do. And he was totally doing what God planned for him to do. He could not say to God, Why do you still find fault with me? I was only doing what you willed for me to do. He can't say that because it was also what he really wanted to do. He sinned willingly. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty are both real. God finds fault in our sinfulness, and we cannot resist His will. We are not completely autonomous. God is completely in charge. I find a clarification by J.I. Packer to be helpful in sorting this out. He makes a distinction between free agency and free will. Here's what he says. It's something of a long quote. All humans are free agents in the sense that they make their own decisions as to what they will do, choosing as they please in the light of their sense of right and wrong and the inclinations they feel. Thus, they are moral agents, answerable to God and each other for their voluntary choices. 
Free will, however, has been defined by Christian teachers from the second century on as the ability to choose all the moral options that a situation offers. But original sin has robbed us of free will in this sense. We have no natural ability to discern and choose God's way because we have no natural inclination Godward. Our hearts are in bondage to sin, and only the grace of regeneration can free us from that slavery. That, that slavery. To use an illustration I heard once, if a field worker throws himself into a hole that he can't get out of in order to avoid work, he can truly say from the hole that I don't have the ability to do what you're telling me to do. But because he is in the hole wrongfully, he can't say he's unaccountable for not being able to work because he used his free agency to lose his free will. Like Pharaoh, like Judas, like everyone who rejects Jesus as Savior. God can find fault with us even though we can't resist his will because our fault is still genuinely our fault. There's mystery in the coexistence of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But we have to be comfortable with mystery. Who are we to answer back to God and say, why have you made me like this? It's enough to know the potter has the right to make us into vessels for honorable use or for dishonorable use, vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. He has the right to do it because no one deserves mercy. What we deserve is wrath. For our sins. Deep waters. But worth thinking through so that we can know our God. Paul gives one more answer as to why God's not unjust in finding fault with some who become vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The first one was because he has the right to, but the second one is because it's necessary. I'll put it like this. God must show his wrath to the saved, or so the saved will see the full display of his glory. God must show his wrath so the saved will see the full display of his glory. Listen to verses 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's purpose. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here are some things to notice about that sentence. First, God desires to show his wrath and make known his power. He desires it. There are vessels of wrath prepared to experience it to their destruction. This is what will happen to all who finally reject Christ. In Revelation 20.15, we're told that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is justice carried out. And God wants to carry out justice. He desires it. It is right for him to do it. He will make known his power in that way. But as we learn in Romans chapter 1, 
Wrath is not reserved only for after one dies without Christ. It is not only the lake of fire. It is something we see happening right now. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is being revealed now. How is it being revealed? Romans 1.24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We see God's wrath already beginning, already beginning by God giving people over to their hardened hearts. This is what it means that God, desiring to show His wrath, endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Already the wrath is happening in His waiting for the, for the end, in His enduring it now, in letting people go, letting them become worse. It's when God says, okay, you don't want me to be over you? You don't want to humble yourself in repentance and faith in Jesus? Well, then I won't stop you. I will let you find out what happens when you indulge the lust of your hearts. And the result isn't good. The result is what's wrong with this world. It's why we have so much strife, turmoil, injustice, suffering. Wrath is already happening, though its ultimate expression is the lake of fire. It will end in destruction. God is making known His power on vessels of wrath. He desires to do it. Nahum 1-2 says, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Do you think that coronavirus is something to be afraid of? Well, wrath is a great deal more fearful. And this is a threat for all who do not put their hope in Jesus for forgiveness of sin. It was a bigger threat before coronavirus. It will be a bigger threat after coronavirus. Everyone should heed John the Baptist's counsel and flee from the wrath of God by trusting Christ, our only refuge from it. But lest we think God's desire to show His wrath is an end in itself, as if He enjoys this, we need to finish the sentence. Because it tells us why God desires this. It is in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. That's the purpose for showing His wrath. The only way vessels of mercy, meaning those He chooses to save, will know the riches of God's glory is if God shows His wrath and makes known His power. Starting now, completed in the world to come those who are outside of Christ. Israel would not have known the full glory of God in their salvation if Pharaoh had not hardened his heart after every plague. If Egypt hadn't been destroyed in the process, if all the army hadn't drowned in the sea, if God hadn't shown his wrath and made known his power in that way, they never would have written their song that they sang on the other side of the Red Sea. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And on goes the song. They couldn't write that if they couldn't see God's wrath and his power made known. They couldn't rejoice unless they had seen what they had been saved from and the power that it took to do that. So it is for believers today. We must live in a world where God is enduring vessels of wrath, where he's allowing the dismantling of good all around us and showing us what happens when you walk away from God. Why does he do that? Because that way we can see what God is saving us from, ultimately what he will save us from. We have to see the consequences of sin playing out in the world to see God giving people over to the hardness of their hearts, to see the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, we must know that that's only the tip of the iceberg of the wrath and fury that is to come for those outside Christ, which would be us apart from mercy. We have to see what we deserve in order to be amazed at what we're saved from. Isn't that exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ shows us? Doesn't it at the same time show us both wrath and mercy? Wrath, because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for everyone who would put their trust in him as Savior. Isaiah says he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Not just by the Romans, but by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God showed his wrath and made his power known on the cross. But also he showed his mercy there. Because there Jesus bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Wrath is not an end in itself, though it is the end for some. But for the saved, it is in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. The cross is for the saving of sinners. It was so God could show mercy to us, so he could make us into vessels of mercy for honorable use to make us like Jesus and to give us a future and a hope with him. The reason God desires to show his wrath is because wrath is the black background that makes the diamond of salvation appear more clearly. God wants his people to be amazed at salvation, amazed at his mercy. And to be more joyful because of it, he will show his wrath, but what he loves to do is show his mercy. And that's what the last four verses all support. His mercy set against the background of wrath. 
The last four verses are all contrasts between vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. So in verse 25, you see it. Those who were not my people, vessels of wrath. I will call my people, (laughs) vessels of mercy. Her who was not beloved, vessels of wrath. I will call beloved, vessels of mercy. And so on with 26 to 29. You are not my people versus sons of the living God. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully, but a remnant will be saved. We would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, the very picture of wrath. But the Lord of hosts has left us offspring. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. God exercising his right to make one for dishonorable use and one for honorable use. God making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy who don't deserve it, whom he has chosen to forgive and prepare beforehand for glory. Friends, if that's you, if you're a believer in Christ, be amazed and be at peace even in this season of pandemic, you are going to be saved from all of this. <laughs> it has been decreed. There is a book of life with your name written in it. You will be there in the world to come without any pandemic or any sickness or sorrow or sadness or pain or crying. Because God has made you his people. You are beloved You are sons of the living God. You are the remnant who will be saved. It's all of grace and all of mercy. And all because Jesus made himself a vessel of wrath in your place so you could be a vessel of mercy. Let's pray. We only begin to see something of the full range of who you are, Lord. Oh, help us to see, though. If there's anything in our hearts that keeps rebelling against you and your self-description, Lord, just quench that. Give us the humility to enter in to who you are and to know that that is good. (laughs) You're not a God of our own making. You are the God who created us. And so thank you. If there's anyone here, Lord, that's finding themselves con- concerned about perhaps maybe I'm, I am outside. I'm not one of your people. Lord, right now grant saving faith. Right now do that miracle. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.